Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1 through 4, verse 8 through 22. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Shabbat to the Lord. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year, there shall be Shabbat, a solemn rest for the land, a Shabbat to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the 15th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 15th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it is a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price, for it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but... You shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. The word of the Lord. You may have heard of the nuns. I mentioned this a few weeks ago when religious surveys ask people to um, identify their religious affiliation. Uh, more and more people today are checking the box that says none. 
no religious affiliation. The interesting thing about this is that most of these people actually believe in God. So what's going on with this? I was listening to an um, interview with the pastor of a uh, large uh, church in the metro New York region recently, um, and a church that reaches thousands of young people. And, and he said that uh, people are, are just as spiritually thirsty as ever. Uh, they may have given up on the church, but they haven't given up on God. Therefore, he prefers to think of them not so much as the nuns. He likes to think of them as the duns. These are people who are done with church as they know it. And as I listen to the people I know, as I read the stories of others, one of the big reasons I hear that people are done with church is because in many people's perspective, the church doesn't seem to care about justice. It cares about people's spiritual condition, but a lot of the times the church today doesn't seem to really care about making a difference in this world. And that's not a new situation So for instance, during the Civil War, uh, many Southern church leaders said that the church should only be concerned with inward spiritual matters and should never concern itself with earthly political matters, including slavery. Now to be sure, a lot of abolitionists were Christians, but historians look back at this time and they will point out that because the church was divided on this, because the church as a whole was unable to agree about whether or not to condemn slavery, the church lost credibility as a result of that. So the big question for us this morning is this, should the church concern itself with what we would call justice? Last week, we were talking about the reality that human beings don't have the power to change the world. We can't make the world the place we long for it to be. But does that just mean we should throw up our hands and not do anything about it? No. In fact, it's the exact opposite of that. um, This morning, we are finishing a series on the book of Leviticus. Leviticus is the story of God um, bringing the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt bringing them into relationship with himself, transforming them, and then sending them back out into the world to be um, the vehicles of a whole new way of living, and that includes justice. In fact, I would say it like this. Um, Unless the church is passionate about and committed to living lives of justice, then we're not really being the people God called us to be. And I know that's a strong statement, Some of you might think, well, it would be great if the church would do that, but I'm skeptical because I've never seen it. Others of you might think that the church should not be involved in matters of earthly justice. And others of you might think that that's all the church should be focused on. And that getting bogged down in these primitive doctrines like sin and salvation and blood atonement, that that's why the church is so fatuous and irrelevant in the first place. So for all of us, this passage has a lot to show about justice. And as we walk through it, I want to point out three things that we see here. We're going to see the call to justice. We're going to look at the practice of justice. And lastly, we're going to talk about the foundation for justice. Okay, the call, the practice, and the foundation of justice. All right, so first, let's talk about the call to justice. This is one of the most radical chapters, uh, not just in Leviticus, but in the whole Bible. It begins with God um, telling the people of Israel to give the land a rest every seven years. 
So just as people are supposed to take a rest, a Sabbath rest every seventh day, God is telling the people to give the land a Sabbath rest every seven years. That means no planting, no harvesting. And uh, Deuteronomy 15 tells us that in that Sabbath year, all debts were supposed to be forgiven. So if you had sold yourself into slavery in order to pay a debt, then you would go free. Sounds pretty radical, huh? This is just the beginning. The rest of Leviticus 25 is all about something called jubilee. That means that every Sabbath, um, every seventh Sabbath year or every seventh seven, in, in, in other words, uh, on the 50th year, not only was the land supposed to take a rest, not only were all debts supposed to be forgiven, not only were slaves supposed to be set free, but all land was supposed to go back to its original owner. And that was a big deal in that world because that was a farming culture. That means that land was everything. Land was wealth. So if you were a family and you had a, a piece of property, but maybe because of like bad crops or bad management or some other misfortune, if you had to sell your land, that was how families fell into poverty. And that was how other families got rich because they would buy up the land. So this is a way of, of actually addressing this situation. If left unchecked, that kind of situation could lead to entrenched poverty. It could lead to an ever-widening gap between the rich and the poor, which is one of our biggest problems in the world today. In this chapter, God is calling his people to a different way of living. Because in this chapter, God is calling them to live lives of justice. So as far as we can tell, you know, one of the interesting things is it doesn't look like Israel in their whole history ever actually observed the Jubilee, which is another subject for another sermon. But if they had, can you imagine what this would have meant? There would have been no wealth gap in their society. In addition, if you think about it, you realize that, that this doesn't really fit into any of our traditional economic and political categories. So for instance, on the one hand, it's a challenge to the idea that the state controls everything because you still see people here having private property. But on the other hand, it's a radical challenge to unfettered free market capitalism because it intentionally puts a limit on the amount of wealth that one person or family can amass. But here's the thing I really want us to see this morning. Um, if you've been with us throughout this series, um, one of my great hopes is that you already noticed this. But how does God begin the instructions for Jubilee? If you look at verses 8 and 9, he says, You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. If you've been with us throughout this series, then the number seven is ringing in your ears. And it should be because seven is the number of creation. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. That means that everything in Leviticus, which is filled with sevens, everything in Leviticus is, is constantly pointing us to God's mission to bring about a new creation. God's mission to heal the world that's falling apart. His mission to bring about a world of beauty and goodness and righteousness and love and harmony. And that includes bringing about a world 
of justice, which is a really big deal for us because God called the people of Israel to be a preview of new creation. He called the people of Israel to to give the world a preview, to be a community of justice in the world, to give the world a preview of, of the kind of world that God was bringing about, to be a preview of a new creation. But here's the thing we really need to understand. It's a preview, not the final reality. In other words, it's kind of like when you go to the movies and they show trailers for upcoming features. Um, The trailer gets you excited about the movie. The trailer shows you what to expect. The trailer, um, it even gives you a little taste of it so that you get all excited. You're like, wow, I can't wait for that to come out. But it's it's a preview. It's not the final reality. In the same way, God calls his people to be a community of justice, not because we're the ones that are going to bring about the final reality. We don't have the power to do that. Only God does. No, God calls his people to be a preview of the final reality that only God can bring about, and one day he will. And that is a really big deal for us, because as I mentioned a little bit ago, we live in a culture that is passionate about justice. That, that is a really big deal in our culture, that this call to justice, the longing for justice, is one of the most powerful longings in our culture today. People are passionate about justice. So last week, we saw that the Bible actually gives us our modern idea of progress, If you weren't here, you can go back and listen to it online. The Bible gives us our modern idea of progress. This passage is where we get our modern idea for justice, especially our culture's emphasis on caring for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. You know, historians and scholars will point out that, of course, the ancient world is full of all kinds of moral codes, full of all kinds of ethical codes, but the ancient world has nothing that puts this kind of emphasis on caring for the poor and protecting the oppressed and the marginalized. So if you're exploring faith this morning, I would invite you to consider the question, why do we care so much about caring for the poor? or protecting the oppressed? Why do we care so much about that? In other words, why not a Darwinian dog-eat-dog world? Why shouldn't the strong eat the weak? We know that they shouldn't do that, but what is the actual basis that we have for that knowledge? Sarah Irving Stonebreaker is a professor of European history in Australia. She uh, went to Cambridge for her PhD and later ended up going to Oxford for her postdoc work. She was a very committed atheist. She was also deeply committed to the idea that universal human value is a self-evident truth. Until she attended a series of lectures while she was at Oxford by the um, uh, very well-known bioethicist at Princeton University. His name is Peter Singer. Peter Singer is not only a well-known bioethicist and moral philosopher, he's also an atheist. And Peter Singer's really rather unique because he's someone who's ruthlessly honest about the implications of atheism for um, human rights and universal human value. So, for instance, Peter Singer, he, he asks the question, okay, if, if God didn't create human beings, then we have to find some other way of, of, of coming up with worth and value for human beings. How do we do that? He, uh, Peter Singer says that human worth, value, is founded in our capacities, uh, capacities for things like 
um, suffering or capacities for things like having a preference, whether for avoiding pain or finding pleasure. According to his reckoning, Peter Singer says that a newborn infant has less worth than an adult cow. Now, when now, he's just being honest about where his atheism leads him. He's wrestling with the implications of this. When Sarah Irving Stonebreaker walked out of those lectures, she says that she was experiencing intellectual vertigo. She, she was completely disoriented by what she had just heard because for the first time in her life, she was beginning to realize that her atheism was incapable of providing her with a basis for universal human value. She thought that Christianity was opposed to things like human rights and racial justice, but the more she investigated, the more she studied, the more she realized that Christianity is actually the basis of those things, and she ended up becoming a Christian. Friends, this is one of the most radical calls to justice um, in human history. God calls his people to be a preview of, of justice in this world, to care for the poor, to work at undoing the systems that, of, of poverty and oppression and injustice in this world. And that leads to our second point. We've just looked at the call to justice. Secondly, we need to talk about the practice of justice. Now, obviously, we could, we could say, and we should say, that that should mean that we should be working to um, address the problems of our world, things like wealth and the poverty gap and poverty, or modern-day slavery, or racial justice, just to name a few. But when we look at this passage, we see that, that how we approach these things in our culture is going to be different from the way they would have approached them in the biblical um, culture. So what I want to do this morning is look at some principles, three principles we see in this passage that help us to think about how we might do justice in any culture. And the three principles are rest, enough, and sharing. Okay? So first, the first principle is rest. There's a book called The Justice Calling by um, Bethany Huang and Kristen Johnson. In that book, they point out that in the Ten Commandments, the commandment to take a Sabbath rest is the only commandment that's tied both to creation and to slavery. So if you think about it, you know, it's not a coincidence that, that the people God calls to be a preview of, of new creation, to be a preview of justice in the world, that the people God calls to do that are a group of ex-slaves. You know, God created people to work, but he also created them to rest. If human beings are deprived of rest, then they are being deprived of God's creational design for their lives. And the Israelites were people who personally knew that experience firsthand. They'd been deprived of that. That deprivation is an act of injustice. It's dehumanizing because it's treating people as a commodity, as a resource to just be consumed, to be used up. So God takes a group of ex-slaves and, and he says to them, look, every seventh day, take a Sabbath rest. Do no work. But then he starts spinning out the implications of that and he tells them at the beginning of this passage, every seventh year, I want you to give the land a rest. So that just as they have been now finally given a rest, they are to begin looking around them and providing rest to the people and the places and the things. Everything around them, including their animals, they are supposed to extend rest to the other things and people and places around them. When we practice a Sabbath rest in our own lives, 
one of the main things that's supposed to do is begin to sensitize us to where the people around us are being deprived of the same rest. That means that, that Sabbath rest is not just a creational principle, it's a justice principle. So that we begin to learn how to ask questions like, where are other people around me being deprived of rest? Where are they being dehumanized? Where are they being treated as commodities? Where are they being used up? Where are people around me um, falling into slavery? Where are people being um, used up? And then how might God be calling us to extend the same rest that we've received into their lives as well? Sabbath rest is not just a creational principle, it's a justice principle. Now, the second principle we see here is that of enough. Because Jubilee meant that every 50 years, all land went back to its original owners, which is a pretty radical thing. You know, um, uh, no matter how much land you bought, over the course of 49 years, you're accumulating, you're accumulating, you're accumulating. It doesn't matter how much land you buy up in that 50th year. It's all going back to the original owner, which is pretty radical. Um, this is a radical check on our own consumption and materialism and conspicuous consumption in our own day and age. This uh, passage shows us that this was a way of preventing people from accumulating more than they need. Or to put it positively, it was a way of helping people look at everything we have and say, I have enough. I don't need more. Of course, our culture trains us to think that we always need more. We've just been through a whole weekend of that. We need more. The scary irony of that is that that actually produces a scarcity mindset in our lives. The more we focus on getting more, the less we feel like we actually have. And that is especially true in our wealthy, um, consumeristic culture. So, for instance, if you make $50,000 a year, but you're surrounded by people who make hundred grand, you feel poor. Or if you make hundred grand, but you're hanging out with people who make a million, you feel like a loser. You feel like you don't have enough. And this is especially exacerbated by um, modern marketing. I was... Um, watching a, a documentary a uh, number of months ago. You can watch it on YouTube. It's called The Century of Self. It's um, all about um, the history of modern marketing in the 20th century. Uh, the first episode, by the way, the music is a little weird and scary, but the content is really good. Um, the first episode tells the story of Edward Bernays. Um, Edward Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. He lived in America. Um, and even though Sigmund Freud, many of his theories have been discredited today, his foundational insight is still widely accepted that human beings are largely driven by unconscious desires and drives. Edward Bernays, brilliant man, he took his uncle's um, insight and basically created modern marketing. Up until World War I, um, companies always marketed their products by simply telling people why their product was a good product. Because the assumption back then was that people only bought stuff they needed. There was no idea of buying things just because you wanted them or desired them. Edward Bernays, instead of marketing to people's needs, he began to teach corporations how to market 
to people's desires. It was the birth of modern marketing. So one of his um, early clients was a man named Paul Mazur. He was a banker at Lehman Brothers. And, and in the documentary, they quote Paul Mazur, who very famously said, we must shift America from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old things have been entirely consumed. We must shape a new mentality in America. Humans' desires must overshadow their needs. The jubilee of Exodus 25 is is a radical challenge to the rampant materialism, consumerism, and conspicuous um, consumption of our day. This is a huge conversation in our culture right now because, as I mentioned, the, the, the wealth gap between rich and poor continues to get wider and wider so that as we become people of rest, we also become people of enough, people who are uh, beginning to be able to look at what we have in our lives and be able to say, this is enough. I don't need more. What would it mean for each one of us to look at the things in our own lives and say, this is enough? What would it mean for, I mean, think about all the different people and institutions in our culture that have responsibility for resources and the allocation of resources, whether as individuals or as corporations or as businesses, developers, attorneys, bankers, um, employees, business owners, all kinds of people. What would it mean for us to look at what we have and say, this is enough. I don't need more. If we were to do that, that would mean that we would begin to transition from um, an economy of consumption to what one Christian economist calls an economy of care. And that leads to our last principle. We've looked at rest. We've looked at enough. Lastly, we want to talk about sharing. So as as we look at this passage, here's the reality. While many people in America do have enough, many people in America don't have enough. And while many Western countries have enough, many other countries don't have enough. When, When we learn to rest in God's provision, when we learn to look at what we have and say, this is enough. One of the things that should be happening is that as we look around the world around us and we see people who are being deprived of rest, as we see people who don't have enough, we should be asking the question, how should we be sharing with them? How should we be sharing our resources with them? So if you look at verse 2, God says, when you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Notice God says the land that I give you. In fact, later in the chapter, God explicitly says the land is mine. It belongs to God. And remember, in that world, land was wealth. Land was money. God is saying it's all mine. And again, this is a challenge to our modern individualistic mindset that says, "Uh, excuse me, God, I, I worked for this. I earned this. Therefore, it's mine. And God says, no, it's mine. And if it's God's, that means that 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 God is the one who has the right to tell us how to use his stuff because it's all his, everything. So so we begin to look at our stuff and we go, first of all, I've got enough. Second of all, this stuff isn't even mine to begin with. How is God calling me to share this stuff with the world around me? So um, for instance, notice that God tells the Israelites, basically jubilee means share the land. 
You're not going to gobble up all land for yourself. Every 50 years, it's going back to its original owner. Share the land. Share my stuff. Or if you look at the early church, one of the things the church was, was um, best known for, and one of the reasons it grew so quickly, was because the early church was known for its radical generosity. It, it was sharing its resources, not only with other Christians, but with all of the poor in ancient Roman society. So for instance, there was a, a well-known Roman emperor named Julian. He was called Julian the Apostate in the 5th century. Julian hated Christians, and he also hated the fact that Christianity was growing so popular in the land. And he recognized also that one of the big reasons Christianity was growing so quickly is because of the radical generosity of the early church. Now, he wanted to revive the ancient pagan Roman religion. But he recognized that in order to do that, you know, that they had a public relations problem. So he basically wrote a letter to one of his priests, and, um, and he essentially was saying to the priest, look, you know, these Christians are putting us to shame. We've got to step up our game. So in the letter, he said this to his priest. He said, when the poor were neglected and overlooked by the priests, that's our pagan priests, he said the Christians, he called them those impious Galileans. <laughs> He said, the Christians observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Friends, God is calling us to share, to transition from an economy of consumption to an economy of care. Now, obviously, we may not have the power to change large-scale institutions, but in our families, in our neighborhoods, or, or I've, 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 learned about institutions or other nonprofits that have actually begun to do this kind of internationally, woven other communities throughout different nations into, into economies of care. As we learn how to do this in our own lives, we learn to share our money. If you have money, share it. Or if you have privilege, share it. Or if you have networks, or relational contacts, or if you have skills, or abilities, or opportunities, share those resources with people that have less than you. Now, we could go on and on talking about what it means to practice justice in our world. This is a never-ending conversation. It's a never-ending endeavor. Keep coming back, because we'll keep talking about it. But we need to move on to our last point. We've talked about the call to justice, and we've seen a little bit about the practice of justice. But lastly, what is the foundation for justice? And here's why this is so important for us. As I mentioned, um, our culture is passionate about justice. That is one of the most beautiful and encouraging things about our culture today. But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why are we so passionate about justice? In other words, wh what are the motivational foundations for our passion for justice in this world? Because there are a lot of different possible motivations for doing justice in this world. For instance, when we see injustice, we should be angry. But if anger is your primary motivation, that could lead to a desire for revenge. That could lead to um, a desire to um, purge the uh, society of, of one set of oppressors and simply end up replacing it with a different set of oppressors. Or another powerful motivation is guilt. 
you know, we know we should be more committed to justice, but we're not, and so we feel guilty about ourselves. But guilt will only sustain you for so long as a motivation. It can't last. Um, Another powerful motivation is pride. We want to look around at the people around us and and think, hey, I'm not like those ignorant, um, selfish people who don't care about justice. I'm better than them. But that ends up being more about our need to feel good about ourselves than the needs of the poor and the oppressed themselves. See, all of those things are different motivations. If any one of those motives, or maybe a mixture of those motives, if that's the primary thing that drives us, then you think about it, you realize we could be doing all kinds of acts of justice in the world, but the whole time, injustice is taking deeper root in our own heart pride and superiority, lust for power or revenge or fanatical desire to purge the oppressor rather than restore people? Do you know what all of those things are? Those are forms of spiritual poverty. You know, our secular Western culture trains us to think, basically to think like those Southern church leaders, that spirituality is private it's all about your personal journey, and we should keep that to ourselves. But, but our work in society, our politics, our ethics, our social causes, that that's public, and that's okay to share in public. Our culture trains us to think spirituality is private, social is public. I think that people are yearning for a more integrated, holistic approach to life, one that doesn't make this sharp division between the spiritual and the social, but brings those two things together. Friends, it is precisely at this point that the Bible gives us the most unique, lasting, and truest foundation for living lives of justice. Because when does Jubilee begin? Yes, every 50 years, of course, but when precisely does Jubilee begin? If you look at verse 9, God says, you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land. Jubilee began on the day of atonement. The day of atonement was the day once a year when the high priest would go into the innermost section of the tent. That's where the glory presence of God was. And and he would sprinkle the shed blood of a sacrificial goat in order to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Jubilee began on the day of atonement. That's the foundation of all true justice. If you think about this, you realize the Bible is saying that the ultimate foundation for living lives of, ju- of justice is always rooted in atonement. That means that we can never separate our spiritual condition from our lives uh, of justice in the world. Those two things are always intimately bound together. We can never separate those two things. So that living a life of justice means that we must begin with the recognition that, that you deserve justice for all of the injustice in your own life, but you've been set free, you've been pardoned, you've been forgiven, that the trumpet has announced a proclamation of liberty on your behalf. How does that actually happen? Hundreds of years later, Jesus Christ began his public ministry by preaching a sermon on Jubilee. You can read about it in Luke chapter 4. 
The text for that day was Isaiah 61, which was all about Jubilee. Isaiah 61 says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's all about Jubilee. Jesus went on to preach the shortest sermon ever. It was one sentence. Some of you are maybe wishing that I would take a page out of Jesus' playbook. <laughs> the shortest sermon ever, Jesus said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. What? How does Jesus fulfill Jubilee? Well, remember, what is Jubilee all about? What, what happens in Jubilee? If you owed somebody money, then no matter how much you owed them, they had to forgive the debt. That instead of making you pay, they paid instead of you. Instead of making you pay, they paid the cost for you. It was an act of radical grace. And the greater the debt, the greater the grace. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ paid our debt so that we could go free. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, he, he says that on the cross, our record of debt was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and that God was canceling our debt because Jesus paid our debt, all of your debt, all of our injustice, our pride, our superiority, our selfishness, our bitter anger, our hard, uncharitable hearts, all of it, Jesus paid our debt so that we could go free. And the more that liberty gets to work in your life, the more that grace touches your heart, the more that begins to transform every part of your life. No part of your life should remain unchanged by that kind of grace. So that as we finish this series on the book of Leviticus, I, I want to encourage you to remember what's at the heartbeat of Leviticus. It's the Day of Atonement. The very center of the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. So the whole first half of the book is all about God calling out to ex-slaves, bringing them into relationship with himself, calling them inside the tent, making a way for them to come inside to his presence, transforming them, renewing them, forgiving them. And then the whole second half of Leviticus is all about God sending people back out into the world to bring the life of the tent to the world outside of the tent. It's all about bringing the freedom and the liberty that we have received to the world around us so that if you have received liberty and grace in Jesus Christ, if you have been transformed and renewed and forgiven, then, then responding to God's work in your life means that you become a vessel of that liberty and that grace to the world around you. You become a person of rest, but also someone who begins to look around you how can I extend this rest to the people around me who are de being dehumanized and deprived of rest? You become a person of enough. That means that, that the, the cancer of consumerism and selfishness slowly begins to erode in your hearts. And as that happens, you become a person of sharing. That as you look around you, you start thinking, wait, I have enough. Who can I share with? You become a person of radical generosity because Jesus Christ poured out his life for you on the cross. Now you begin to pour out your resources for the people around you. You become a person and the church begins to become a community of justice. Let's pray.